0: Thank you, everyone. This is really neat that you've all accomplished this. Somehow I was asked to be involved. Uh, I had run a poetry event at the community gardens, which Leslie Clark, the a local publisher of an online journal, Voices on the Wind, helped with. And so I came over, and we decided uh, maybe I'll, I'll do a, a little talk about appreciating poetry, just to get everyone into the mood for listening to poetry. And it brings some, uh, a little, um, it's not really literary theory in a, in a normal sense, because I also come from the background of being an artist. Um, but uh, I hope that this uh, helps get us into the mood, and that uh, and, uh, it's not any harder to understand than poetry is. So
1: <laughs> OK, and I called it
0: Imagining Poetry. And it's, it's not too long. It's like a, a little over a page. This is a statement about the appreciation of poetry, which I've titled Imagining Poetry. Its purpose is to help us enjoy listening to poetry today by urging us to not fall into the traps of bringing the expectations we bring to other forms of writing or entertainment in our listening experience. The questions here become, how do appreciation and imagination correlate, and how do they correspond with poetry? What is poetry? What is imagination? How do, we come, how do we come to appreciate, or to like, or enjoy, or get yourself into the mood for poetry? One clue is that we need knowledge to appreciate something, whether experiential knowledge or book knowledge. Taste really is an acquisition. The more obscure an art form, such as opera, the more knowledge. Excuse me, one moment here. I seem, my eyesight is getting different as I get older. OK, we got it. OK, the more obscure an art form, such as opera, the more knowledge of history, mythology, music theory, or, or the language something is performed in will obviously help us to get the work, to enjoy, or at least appreciate it. For this reason, I encourage poets at the readings to give some context or background to a poem prior to reading it out loud as time will allow, though not doing that may also serve some purpose too, because no rule in poetry should be absolute. Since language is phenomenologically metaphorical in nature, let me expound this further by saying that poetry itself is also a metaphor, including any literal use of the word. Though this may be hard to see from behind the mirror, I had a painting teacher who would talk about the poetry I- in my or other students artwork this sense of the poetic in things could be applied to music the landscape dance the story of one's life an amazing coincidence etc this is where the metaphorical nature of the concept of poetry itself is more obviously metaphorical but the image schema behind the poetic I argue, is found in this greater experience of what we call poetry, not to be defined by any particular object of written verse, rhyme, song, or, or of the, the kind of cliche of what we think a poem is. Poetry has to do with a kind of dynamic, interrelated construction. Not in terms of fixed things, but how things come together remarkably in the process of making or the happening of that, of those things. This is a wide open enough place of dynamic activity that any kind of experimental, interconstructed thing of things could also be fashioned into a poem or artwork. But the poly semantic nature of language, how words have multiple meanings also guarantees that that every inch of poetry will have multiple meanings and is not merely a linear communication device. The expectation of comprehensive understanding, particularly in one sitting, is probably one of the most destructive ways to try and listen to or read a poem. Many poems are more like infinity devices for the imagination, just as other types of artworks are, full of ambiguities and music dance, or the incredible inventions of modern painting and sculpture. What is imagination? The easiest way that I will put that is that it's your mind. No complete concepts of mind or imagination have reached a consensus definition or anatomy in either science or philosophy, though the fields of consciousness studies may bring us closer. One thing that poetry may be is a kind of quantum landscape where experiential intelligence and anagogical intelligence commingle and may give birth to new thought paradigms. One must be careful that one is not confusing knowledge with idealism or ethnocentric dogmatism. Even though a poem may appear amateur in its use of language, its ethnic conceits may give way to a poetry the very Instant, they may also confess the naivety of, say, Anglo-cultural values or grammar, for instance. This is the value given to outsider art, and it is a value given to being experimental in art. We may also need to take a backseat to our expectations for speed of comprehension, which which can be very impatient, which we can be very impatient with in today's consumer society. When it comes to listening, the customer is not always right. In a sense, it is like a moral failure when we fail to appreciate something in the larger sense of the word, aside from whether or not we like or enjoy something. Judgments of taste should not be existentially reduced to being a question of something something's mere entertainment value. If a poem is entertaining. That is only one trope of many, uh, of many in that particular poem. Others may be highly analytical, for instance, that being a function of that poem. As in a poetic moment, appreciation is an act of experience beyond the object of the artwork itself, and beyond the object of time actually spent qualitatively experiencing that object. It is an experience of now. And here we are now. So let's take off our hats and see what strange treasures the storm of life has brought in. Okay. well, thank you. I'm sorry I had computer problems with that.
1: Thank you, Ken, for getting us uh, kicked off. We found out through our correspondence uh, that we're both from northern Illinois. He's an Evanston, Evanston guy, and I'm from uh, Rockford, Illinois. Don't hold that against us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for getting us kicked off. Okay, so Lorraine was very instrumental with uh, uh, Pamela Lee and getting this book published is next, and the reader after her will be Roland, Roland Buchhaus.
2: Okay,
3: I want to do what Ken said and tell you a little bit about this poem so you have some idea what it's about. Uh, The name of this poem is called Images Through Time. And what happened to me was that I went to the city dump, you know, our place where we burn and throw everything away. And there I saw beautiful albums of pictures that people had thrown away, probably people they no longer knew. But I just saw all these images floating around in the in the city dump and I thought how difficult it is for all of us to realize that everything comes to an end. You know, that, and We like to capture time by taking pictures hoping we can hold things and, and yet all things do come to an end and yet at the very same time even though there's destruction there's also right along with it always creation So, creation and destruction are always together in our lives, and it's a difficult thing for us to have to contemplate. Images through time. Remember me? I once lived. I lived this moment of time. Old, forgotten photos are calling out as they rise and fall across a windy landfill. We long to live on, beyond our bodies, forever. Photos collect on dusty shelves in dark corners, waiting and waiting for a living mind to experience a past once so alive and so present. They're the first thing saved when fires burned, these images of childhood and loves, all preserved in a time that can never return. Powerful paper prints can ignite memories burning with nostalgia. Look at the camera. Smile, my love. Smooth those soft locks, satin, silk, and suitable clothing. Innumerable clicks of image preservation save us for now from our own known obliteration. A solution is found free of corruption Images are stored forever in the cloud. Ah, alas, too soon, new generations don't care to look. We the living adore much more what is living. We are passionate for survival, for continual continuation. The laws of life lie curled in our cellular compartments, but absurd everlasting endings leave us so perplexed we become seekers of certainty in stories of eternity. (laughs) Despairing in our endings, rejoicing in our beginnings, as cosmic eros holds the power of image creation with rules of endless transformation.
1: Thank you, that was Lorraine Groberg. Roland Buckers is next, and Richard Albright will follow him. Thank
4: you. Excuse me? Roland (laughs) Buckhurst. I like the idea of polysymantic. I attempt to do that one of these days. This is a little more simple. I think it's a great, great, grand stepchild of haiku. It's called Sincane. It's 22 syllables as opposed to 17 and the 22 syllables are arranged 2 4 6 8 2. It's typically a little story with the punchline at the last two syllables. Let's see how we done with that idea. Snowflakes and unicorns. Moonbeams and mayflowers. Want to hear that horse pokey? Thought not. When we take the dirt nap, just how do we prepare? have a living will and a trust filled out my death i fear it not why should i be the one the only one who cheats the grim reaper be clear be clear to those who stay your ironclad rules for life and when you declare finally it's done be clear on what you need in the last days of life what's acceptable life and what isn't State what defines true life and what does not come close. So when the time comes to just pull the plug. Leaving my kids is hard. Harder still leaving them is the burden of watching me waste away. Worse still, worse still, and I mean worse, is being with a husk of what was me before I died upstairs. We treat horses and dogs better than we treat us in times of pain and suffering. That fair? My death, do I dread it? I've had my turn at life. My gratitude goes beyond no bounds. No lie. The best I can do now is leave some good guidance for when I can't speak my choice. Next year? The oath, Hippocratic, above all do no harm. How do forced feeding tubes align with that? I fear from the shadows some dark priest will appear, forcing the writ of some strange god upon me. Those folks who stand to gain as I suffer or profit from my lingering, screw em. Permit me to get to the heart of where my mind started with this notion. Let's see. Who speaks for my poor soul just lying there, twitching, unfeeling, undead? I do. Dr. Kevorkian. That That name stirs deep feelings of dread or doubt or relief or what? If I'm plugged in, doped up, don't know what day it is, it's not the way I want to go, stuff me. On my way out, please turn out my lights and just cover your tracks so that lawyers don't gain. He had help, one of my true heroes, speaking his inconvenient truth from jail. Surgeons with masks and knives don't call me I'll call you when I need a heart bypass at 90. Listen, if I can't talk but can still understand, one blink means yes, and two blinks means no. Capiche? Three blinks means ask me more. And if I blink four times, I need a different questioner. Got that? Questions one could just ask. You want some pain meds? Maybe some carnal distraction? Pervert? Some more one just might ask, you want anyone to visit? You want the plug pulled? Child friend? Tell them, tell family, your end of life wishes. Spare them painful decisions in stressed times. It pays the hospital to keep you plugged in. They will, unless you're quite clear. You bet. Your life Make sure it ends on your terms, not theirs. They may may have an agenda you may not like. If we protest as one, perhaps someday all will just know what it means to be free at last. Thank you, Roland.
1: (laughs) Uh, Next up, Richard Albright. There's Richard. Heather is after Richard.
5: Home alone the other day, or some day or other, uh, making strange noises in an effort to uh, entertain myself. And this came to mind. It's called a bundle of ducks. Whenever I hear a loud quacking sound, I imagine a bundle of ducks. I know ducks don't normally come in a bundle unless you're a Chinese wholesale grocer, which I am not at least at the moment. Ducks also don't come in a herd, a bale, a brigade, or a posse. One might say, however, that they have been see that they have seen an agglomeration of ducks or even in an emergency a passel, a group or a band. But if I said that I had seen a band of ducks Someone would probably ask, were they playing a Sousa march? Let us return to the Chinese wholesale grocer, the one with the bundle of ducks. The ducks in his bundle are flat and shiny, incapable of quacking because they are dead. No, the bundle of ducks, which I imagine, live in a faraway land, a land with no grocers, Chinese or otherwise, a land where ducks may assemble in any way that they wish in clots, in sisterhoods, in brotherhoods, in platoons, in choirs, and large corporations. A land where ducks can do as they please, as long as their actions are duck-like. This one's called Wisdom. What is wisdom if it is not a pie in the face? Some say wisdom is like a reprimand from the authorities. Some say wisdom is like a sandwich without bread. Soup with no bowl, salad with rocks. My opinion, if I had one, is that wisdom can be found by not looking directly, by trying to forget that song that keeps haunting you with an unfamiliar cadence. Wisdom is good for lunch, if you're hungry. This one's called Box of Pain. I keep my worst, most extreme pain in a box on a shelf in my closet. I don't generally have much use for it. But every once in a while, I go in the closet, take down the box, bring it to the table, and open it. This is not an exercise in pleasure. It is a remembrance of how I used to be. It's an old joke told incorrectly. Nobody laughs. I put the box away, perhaps another day. This one's called Patriotic. I was riding the bus going downtown. and The other riders were very quiet. I thought it would be nice to make some noise. So I started singing the Star Spangled Banner as loud as I could. The guy sitting next to me asked, what's the matter with you? I said I was feeling patriotic. He told me to be quiet.
6: I was going to read a couple poems that are not in the book. Uh, This one's called The Moon Will Never Let You Forget. And it was from a painting I did. And then I just thought the painting inspired me to write this poem. There was a young woman who did not know fear. The wind parted her hair and flew with her carefree into the currents of the wild. When the celestial charms chose her, they did not ask for anything from her not even a name, but graced her with their smiles. She would play for the moon, the rise of her breath, the chords of her laughter, the song of her hair flying free in the wind, the moon could hear it all. The moon loved her, noticed the sun's warm reflections on her face, the colors that rose with her heartbeat. The moon lit her stage. She loved the moon allowed the moon to roll her over and over on the round pebbles and sand of the beach, softening her skin for her own pleasure. She noticed when others tried to weigh in on her scales, tried to tip her over to their own profits, or when they tried to quantify her beauty as if it were for sale. She knew she might get caught in the gears of their fun She might be dismantled and turned into unholy body parts. No, she did not need any proof. There were no clouds of currency hiding the moon. The moon had already told her. Her smile was not for sale or the softness of her skin. The moon would always bathe her in jewels of light. Even when the sun set, the moon would never let her forget the intrinsic value of her happiness. The moon would never let her forget how the wind parted her hair and flew with her carefree into the currents of the wind, of the wild, sorry. <laughs> um, I was gonna read one other poem. This is a poem um, called You Freed Me From My Fortress, and it's about when you've given up on love and then decided you were going to be vulnerable and love again. You freed me from my fortress. It took so many years to design. Cold to love's advances, strong to love's decline. You laid a path of flowers, their fragrance a lost memory. The timid steps I took were dressed in naked finery. I opened and let fear walk away. I ventured into the blue, where no heartache can stay. There's no disturbance in nature, you say, no quarrel to define. Only disturbances gather in the quarters of your mind. Hush the tempest. No joy let it still or by. Its forces will be quelled with the communion of our sigh. Yes, you say. This time I will let you gather many beautiful bouquets. This time there will be no lonely division. No heart and soul decay. What a beautiful pose. I see poetry perched on your lips again. You might have been kissed by a butterfly or found a friend again. Your outline, it is so sublime. Your breath still holds the structure of love's endless design. I will be your scribe, you say. In no brief measure I will retell how I freed you from your fortress and released you from your hell. In naked humility, many tears I cried. Embraced by love's entirety, there was nowhere I wanted to hide. Maybe I don't need to read the ones in the book since you guys already have (laughs) them.
1: Thank you, Heather. Jerry is next. Fitz Morris and Edna. Edna Weigel will be following him. Come on up, Jerry.
7: I I saw a photograph once, it was in black and white. It was faded, it was grainy. It it showed a a corner of a restaurant, a few tables, and they were all empty. And uh, this is what I felt. (coughs) And this is what I felt. (laughs) 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 Sitting at a table, looking at the wall the fading daylight carves scimitar shapes on the dusty worn carpet that covers the warped flooring in the center of the small room. Lazy curtains hanging still, no breeze to stir their ragged borders. No children on tiptoe beneath them peeking over the sill at sunset. No tinkling sounds of water or perhaps a light wine being poured slowly into old crystal as sunlight burns reflections onto pure tablecloths. Where did it all go? What happened? All oh, the people are there, the children still play, gazing in wonder at life's changing portraits, the one knowing, the other not. But all too soon, the darkness comes. There was a time when hope was near, when people smiled, some joy, some fear. But now the days are marked by chance. There is no given outcome, only a maybe. Ethics, honesty, contracts sealed with a handshake alone by trusty men, these days are remembered with a fond longing and missed with a terrible pain. Where did it all go? What happened? What happened to the wish to live a good life, to know the neighbors, at least those near, to give a promise and hold to it hard, to welcome even strangers into the yard. It's all too risky now. It isn't safe to trust. A lost child can't ask for help. There's danger everywhere. No more heroes, no more helpers, no more saints. There used to be empty lots to play in, all gone now to buildings. No more streams to fish in. The fish are also gone. Sitting and dreaming solves nothing. The day is finished now, walking away with a head shake, leaving it all behind, closing the door with a whisper, poor old humankind. That's it. (laughs) Uh, Christmas, when I think of Christmas, I think of gifts. That's the kind of mercenary I am. This is a Christmas poem, sort of. For 61 Christmases I have searched since I was a babe and had just been churched. Through childhood I wandered, ever looking still. Then on through the teen years, the top of the hill eluded my footfalls. The climb got much steeper. The sun went to rest. The night got much deeper. Onward and onward, the path with no ending continued to wind through dark nights, always lending. A feeling of sadness, of life all alone, emptiness, chilling, right down to the bone. Then came a blessing, a gift from above, a face with a smile overflowing with love. Gentle but steady, the souls came together, one like a tree trunk, the other a feather. And these last few Christmases brought life anew. Robust and sparkling and graceful like you. So, dear one, I thank you from deep in my heart for being on hand to give life a start. On the first page of my book, a page white and clean, I write this sentence. I love you, Noreen.
1: Thank you, Jerry. And our next reader is Edna Weigel and David Grohlberg, you'll be following her.
8: I grew up on a small farm in Kansas where we grew most of our food. And this is a story of change of season. First frost was definitely a big deal for us. So this poem is titled First Frost. It didn't frost last night, though the season's about right. Clouds kept Jack Frost away, but they hid sun's warmth today. Remember the bleak cold of winter. I pulled from his closet a warm sweater. We'll need coats by dark. I wonder if it'll frost tonight. My inner sense says it might. Cold winds blow away the dark clouds of gray. Wish I'd canned pickles before now. I'll pick dill and cucumbers anyhow. It might frost tonight. I think it'll frost tonight. The noon report said it might. The clouds are fast leaving this place, and cold wind bites my face. I'll find old sacks and a blanket or two to cover tomatoes, just a few, in case it frosts tonight. It's going to frost, it feels to us, the children shout getting off the bus. They've energy to spend playing tag with the wind. They bring baskets, bags, and boxes to fill with vegetables they'll harvest in the chill. It just might frost tonight. It's going to frost tonight by morning. The radio had a definite warning. Precious daylight wasted away while we waited for the report to play. Hurry back to the garden again to work in the dark and save what we can. Last chance till spring. Pull a few whole tomato plants to see if they'll ripen by some chance. Now wouldn't it be ever so fine to have fresh tomatoes at Christmas time? We must save them yet tonight, or they'll freeze before daylight. Winter is here. Pick anything even halfway ripe to finish ripening later inside. But leave those few tomatoes alone. We'll cover them where they have grown. They might live some more weeks. If only protected till tomorrow morn. It could warm up tomorrow. Never mind if you break a vine. Save what you can in minimum time. Pick green tomatoes despite the chill The biggest ones may ripen still. The greenest ones we will eat and the relish we'll make next week. We'll eat well this winter. Leave cabbage and other hardy crops. They're fine until the temperature really drops. Leave sweet potatoes still in the ground. We'll dig them tomorrow when time can be found. Leave winter squash still in the vine. Once leaves are brown, they'll be easy to find. We'll be mighty busy for a while. We've saved all we can on this cold night, so haul baskets, tubs, and bags inside. Serve the soup while I tend the fireplace. Then we'll have warm stomach and face. Jack Frost will visit while we're in bed. Tomorrow we'll find summer's garden dead. Good thing we harvested tonight. I don't mind if it frosts tonight. Our harvest really makes quite a sight. Winter will be plenty cold, but we'll survive as in days of old. We'll study seed catalogs with great care and dream of harvests for next year, even though it'll frost tonight. It did frost last night. The world is covered with crystals white. The tomato plants have all turned black, except those covered with blanket or sack. Inside over baskets and boxes we trip, or we can tomato juice this winter to sip. Already we plan for spring.
9: I'm going to read the old apple tree. I knew a man who was born in uh, 1906. His mother died when he was two years old of what they called childbirth fever. And then his father a year later. And so at three years old, he was an orphan. He was sent to live with his aunt and uncle in uh, Ogden, Utah. And he asked, where are my mom and dad? And his aunt said, they're up in heaven. And so he climbed up this big old apple tree, trying to get closer to his mother and father. And this is a poem about that. And this man was my father. Left alone in the world, a little boy. Climb to the top of an old apple tree. Hey, did the sky open up for you, little boy, as you wondered what your life might be? A vision of love from your parents above, close to you, watching you, keeping you safe from all harm. What did you see from that old apple tree? Was there love in the air? Were there children everywhere? You dreamed a dream that we share with each other. We love you so, our wonderful father.
1: Imagine that someone would sing their poem. A Lesson in Meter. Molly is up now and uh, followed by Wallace.
10: And now for something completely different. <laughs> when Pamela, Pamela announced this project, it never occurred to me to submit my work. You see, I don't write poems. I write limericks. And I write them in the body tradition. <laughs> now, some members of this church have done some fairly bizarre readings, Uh, at services, and our former minister, Rod Richards, uh, once made some short comments about some of the unexpected phrases he'd heard uh, from this pulpit. If he had a chance to read my chapter in the book, he'd have a full sermon. (laughs) So be forewarned. Um, The editors put these in the book, so I'm told I can read them. So I started writing limericks about 20 years ago, shortly after moving to Patagonia. We found new friends there who had an annual uh, party for St. Patrick's Day, and a limerick was the price of admission. So um, I was the new doc in town, and being the new doctor in a small town, uh, within a few weeks, most everybody knew who I was, and uh, within a few weeks, I thought everybody looked sort of vaguely familiar. I, I did have this encounter at one point where this uh, woman uh, in my first year when I was there uh, came into the clinic and said to me that, well, she apologized because she had crossed the street to avoid meeting me earlier in the year. Um, and she explained that I had done her pelvic exam and she was embarrassed about meeting me in public. So I'm staring at this lady and I'm thinking to myself, have we met? So my first poem uh, plays on this patient fear, and it's called Small Town Dock. In the best of all worlds, I suppose, I should have recognized you by your woes. But if you're from Patagonia, it's more likely known you had you presented yourself without clothes. <laughs> this year, at our annual party, the hostess had two new hips and my husband had a new heart valve. So I wrote a little poem on aging. It seems we're all becoming old farts, so let's give thanks for the surgical arts. As those present may attest, we are feeling quite blessed, for we're all getting round on spare parts. (laughs) Now, most of my inspiration comes from my medical practice, And I pride myself on being able to communicate with my patients and to be able to take most anything that they say uh, to me. But there are occasions, rare occasions, when I just have to turn and face the wall for a moment. And this was one of them. True story. I talk sex with teens because I care. But this one girl just gives me a blind stare. I ask, are you sexually active? She replies, "Well, um, the fact is, not really no. I just lie there." <laughs> okay, if anyone was embarrassed by that last poem, they should leave now. Another true incident inspiration. I once worked in a clinic in uh, Tucson, which was very poorly designed. The, the waiting room was immediately outside the exam room, so there was absolutely no privacy. And this older gentleman, who is obviously hard of hearing, comes into my exam room, and he shouts at me, without even closing the door, Doc, I got a problem with my joystick. And without hesitation, I shouted back, What? Can't get it in gear? (laughs) It's it's okay. I'm a doctor. I'm trained to be able to talk about these things. (laughs) So this led to my most infamous poem called What's Up, Doc? (laughs) An elderly patient boomed, Doc, I used to be hard as a rock. But now my joystick don't work worth a lick, and my love life's reduced to just talk. (laughs) He continued, I'm not at the junction where I'm ready to give up consumption. I've got appetite, but try as I might, I just can't get the dang thing to function. (laughs) And though we tried first this, then that med, his member remained just flat dead. So it was off to the surgeon for a prosthetic insertion which made him a favorite in bed. (laughs) Well, he returned to me, pleased with his cock, and exclaimed to my consternation and shock, who'd I thought that they could make these things out of wood? This here's a hickory dick for you, doc. (laughs) (laughs)
6: There
1: there was some talk about re-sanctifying the... uh, building after all of this, so, you know, whatever. Okay, water. Yes, 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 smoke and sage, right, right. Okay, Wallace Huggett is next. Uh, Rita, you'll follow Wallace. Wallace?
11: Thank God for the First Amendment, (laughs) I have a poem by Archie, he of Archie and Mehitable fame. It's the only one I have that meets the time constraints. Once upon a time there was a free verse poet who died and his soul went into the body of a cockroach. And as a roach he still felt the need to write poetry. Archie, as he was called, wrote poems using an old-fashioned typewriter, hurling himself against the keys one by one, letter after letter after letter, and that helps to explain why his poems don't have capital letters and they don't have punctuation. (laughs) There was a fellow named Don Marquis, looks like Marquis, but it actually was pronounced Marquis, was a New York journalist and poet who created Archie in 1916. He did that to help fill out his newspaper columns, and Archie's poems fit the bill. The poems are all, or almost all, addressed to boss, which is what he called Marquis. In the mid-1930s, however, Archie's voice went silent, but I thought it was time in the 21st century to resurrect him. Now Archie writes for me, and he calls me boss. So, with apologies to the memory of Don Marquis, this is Archie Sends His Regrets. Boss, you know how they used to say, if there were a nuclear war, the cockroaches would inherit the earth? We never did find out what would happen if the planet suddenly caught a case of World War III. But the way you humans are now cooking the earth, I think you're bringing on the apocalypse in slow motion. And now I don't know if my fellow roaches and I will get the legacy we anticipated. If the human race is planning an extinction party and inviting all the other species, including mine, I would have to say, No thank you. I wish to decline your invitation if I can't be confident of my inheritance. Expectantly yours, Archie.
1: Thanks, Wallace. Rita is next, and Pamela Lee will follow Rita.
12: I wrote this poem when I was driving in the car in Florida, and then all the trees were around me. Trees, trees, trees. Breeze, breeze, breeze. Sneeze, sneeze, sneeze. Wheeze, wheeze, wheeze. Achoo, tissues, please. <laughs> okay. And the other one is a remembrance song. I wrote the Remembrance Song in March 2005 as part of a two-act play describing the plight of Polish Sociniarians facing a choice of conformity or exile as a result of Catholic reaction to anti-Trinitarianism in the 17th century Poland. The play was part of a doctoral dissertation by Reverend Ann Fuller. It was presented to members of several Unitarian Universalist Church in Central Florida. Remembrance song Whoa
13: woe woe are we, woe are we? We're not free to think, to pray, to do or say what we believe in our way. Smutak samai, smutak samai
12: and the translation of that word those words in Polish are sadness or we
13: Woe are we if we disagree. They sold our rights, they stole our land. They said obey our command to convert or disband. Woe, woe, woe are we. Woe are we. We're not free to think, to pray, to do or say what we believe in our way. Smutuk samai, smutuk samai. Woe are we if they
12: disagree. They stole our rights, they stole our land. There would be death to every man, convert or flee to a distant land.
13: Woe, woe, woe are we, woe woe, are we. We're not free to think, to pray, to do or say what we believe in our way. Smootuk samai, smootuk samai. Woe are we if we disagree. We were right, and they were wrong. The cost
12: of freedom is so strong. Singing this song today gives us the strength to think, to pray, to do or say. Stay free, and don't let others take your freedom away. Don't let others take your freedom away. Do vizendia. Goodbye.
14: In the Desert Museum magazine. And before I read the poem, a little test. I'm gonna read you a series of numbers and if you recognize the series or think you know their significance, raise your hand. One, one, two, three, five, eight, thirteen, twenty-one, twenty-four. 13, 21, 24, 55, 89, a goodly number of you. What I was reading was the beginning of the Fibonacci sequence. The sequence is simple. Begin with a 1, add a 1 to the 1 to get 2, add 2 and 1 for 3, 3 and 2 for 5. Do you begin to see the pattern? You can keep adding the last two numbers together all the way to infinity. Now here's the wonder. Divide any number by the number before and you get 1.6 and so much more. That's the golden rule, 3 to 5. The aesthetically pleasing proportion in three by five cards, and Leonardo's art. It's the formula for perfect stairs risers three, treads five. The sequence is elegant, and how nature loves to repeat the formula. Witness the miracle of the nautilus shell, the agave swirl, how palm fronds climb, the pattern of the sunflower seeds, even the spiral growth of the big sheep's horn. God or happenstance designed, God called it good Fibonacci, understood. (laughs) If I could be an artist, I'd be a Botticelli. I'd have a long-legged, red-haired mistress and paint her again and again. I'd paint her as a virgin maid and as mother and child, I'd paint her As mother and child, again, I think I'm right.
13: Uh,
14: and Judith with a bloody sword, as a young girl, Medici. I dress her in a blue flowered gown and have her portray spring. And then I'd have her drop the gown and pose as all three graces. I'd paint her red hair flowing free as Venus rising from the sea. I'd even paint myself while Crowds and magi adore Mary. The man looking at you is me.
1: Great. Thank you, Pamela, very much. Now, Pamela was the last of the imagined poets. And let's just one last time. Can we have all the imagined poets please stand up, turn around, (laughs) see the next person, huh? (laughs) So I left my list over there. But we also have some members of the community. Oh, by the way, one of the things that is really neat to do at a book launch is, first of all, buy the book. Okay? So buy the book, and then have each of these authors sign it. Sign their poem. We should have one for archives or something. But anyway, see how many, see how many signatures you can get. It'll thrill you, and the authors, I know what it feels like to sign your book or your story or your poem. For the first time, it is, it is a wonderful experience, and I hope all of you can share that. Super! So, our first community writer-reader is Marion. Right, Marion Peterson. Can you?
2: Well, this poem is a little different too. Right into the microphone. Oh, okay, okay. Can you hear me now? Good. I'm nearly 90, and I don't write poems that rhyme because I'm old-fashioned. I write poems that rhyme because I like them. So here's my poem, The Pelican. Keep that in mind. The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some money, and they took some honey and plenty of money. Now doesn't that just get your goat? A cat and a bird in a boat? Whose idea was that? Pussy was being beginning to gloat when the bird moved close to the cat. The moment Pussy beckoned, I saw her ornery smirk. It only took a second. That owl was such a jerk. <laughs> well, pussy ate the owl. Now pussy's all alone. She shouldn't have eaten that fowl for her, for she began to groan. The kitty's little belly full began to hurt and cramp. Then then rains then the rains filled up the hull and pussy was so damp and pussy had an awful fit she flipped right up out of the boat she couldn't swim back to it she couldn't even float so there was pussy in the drink she couldn't swim a stroke what was her fate What do you think? This wasn't any joke. But (laughs) here comes the pelican who took her from the drink. He was as strong as any man. Poor puss was on the brink. He flew away with pussy in tow. He took her to the land. She almost hated to see him go as she waved her little hand. (laughs) She skulked away and rested a day. She never ate birds again. She respected the birds that fly away, especially the pelican. (laughs) The pelican got what he would need. The pea-green boat he'd touch. The pelican did a lovely deed. The pussy, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: did I call it diversity, huh? Did I call it? <laughs> All right. Thank you, Marion. Edward Bottomley, another one of our community poets, is next, and he'll be followed by Dave Grishup.
15: Good evening. I... Uh, I have a book here called beckoning and um it's just i've just finished it this week i've spent all all year writing it i was reading one or two poems to a member of the church here to judy over there and she suggested i might like to uh, take the opportunity to read one uh, this evening so i have a friend who i'd read the first two poems to some time ago who said well you need a poem to end this book." Uh, and this, this book, this poem has become the title of the book. And it's th- th- this, th- these poems are all about life, and they're relatively serious, most of them. There's odd touches of humour here and there. But this particular one is, is along the lines of life beckons, so beckoning. Except for one's final farewell, a new beginning follows every end. A new opportunity on which one's mortal capital to expend. Only once upon this earth implies you should not let your time go to waste. It will be impacted by your decisions and may not be to everyone's taste. You are an individual and life your most important possession. It may be challenging, but things worthwhile need to find expression. Regardless of your age, you are an actor on this stage. Rich or poor, how will or can you improve the next page? The treasure we each seek varies from person to person. Depending on the input, its value may enhance or worsen. How can it be measured and would it be worthwhile? Of course it could be that such an approach is not your style. To make the best of every situation can be so rewarding, even an unmitigated disaster, like a river fording. There may be no direct correlation between giving and receiving, but to say there's none lacks perception and is self-deceiving. As you look ahead, seek to eradicate uncertainty and fear It will help to make your course of action so much more clear. And as you treat others as you would like to be treated, you will find you win more often than you are defeated. That was Edward Bottomling. Thank
1: you. Not from around here. Dave Grishop, another community writer-reader. Welcome.
16: My life's journey has been well-blessed because it's taken me uh, in the corporate world to live and work internationally through many parts of this world. And I learned from that that cultures and nations, it's not right or wrong, it's just different. So about eight years ago, I had the privilege of being at a major change of command at Fort Huachuca, sitting up on Brown Parade Field, and I listened to the installation chaplain give the invocation. As he talked about God and this, and my mind kind of wandered, and I looked out over the formation of soldiers, and I said, "I wonder how the Jewish soldier feels. How does a secular soldier feel?" Is there a Hindu in that group of soldiers with this chaplain talking about God? So that bothered me and for about a year, this kept bothering me and so finally, I put it all together and wrote a poem called They. They are endowed by their creator. Whose creator and which they? Is it the few Jew? Yewa, bless America. Smattering of Hindu? Shiva, bless America. Or these? Mormon, Muslim, Confucian, Buddhist. Heavenly Father, bless America. Allah, bless America. Shangdi, bless America. Kovthama, bless America. Little known creator's names. Invoked across the fruited plains. The seculars, more than a few, a pesky lot, who soldiered in many fights and possess unalienable rights, do they bless America? Fear not, the Creator's with us. Wounded knee, more than a memory, interred Japanese, a memory war on terror, contemporary, might is right, and on our side. God bless America. All men are created equal, T.J.'s quill did remind. All creators intertwined, all equal by design, except.
1: Okay.
17: I'd like to invite all the poets here to, for, to do a couple of things. I edit and publish an online poetry journal called Voices on the Wind. I publish it quarterly. Just go to voicesonthewind.net to check it out. My next submission deadline is January 20th for the February 1st issue, and it's open theme. All right, did get this thing to behave. <laughs> also, I've been um, having Open Poetry Readings at Hoppin' Grapes, which is a wine bar in Fry Boulevard. Our next one of those is the third Saturday of January, January 16th at 1 o'clock. So I hope I'll see some of you there. (laughs) This thing is not cooperating with me. (laughs) Okay. Okay, you're going to make this thing behave for me? So I've been told that... Okay, this is a on-the-road poem, it's called, Which Way? All my life, maps have lied to me. By the time I wrestle with a map's infinite folds, turn it upside down and sideways, and locate where I am, I'm inevitably somewhere else. When it looks like I should be turning left, according to the wisdom of some minuscule black lines, they don't take into account which direction I'm currently headed so I end up more profoundly lost than before. Maps never warn of detours or road work. Torturous pieces of paper are ill-equipped to deal with reality. GPS devices are no better. While there's less room for error, that's part of the problem. I'll be cruising along, dreaming a poem, letting soft music entertain my ears when a metallic voice warns me of something that will happen in two miles, making me jump and stuttering my heart. It doesn't allow for bladder urges or cravings for a snack. I pull off the road and it starts shouting, Turn around now! <laughs> then I have to push endless buttons to shut it up, usually for good. We can plan all we want, but there are an inevitable roadblocks, obstacles, and wayfaring we cannot foresee. I figure the best I can do is keep traveling and let the journey take me where it will. Thank you. I sat down to eat at my favorite cafe. I've
5: always enjoyed eating there. I asked the waitress, what's good tonight? She said, try the prime rib if you dare. So that's what I ordered and sat back to wait in fervid anticipation, knowing that I would be satisfied with heavenly good gustation. In very few minutes, the waitress returned, bearing a stainless steel tray. She set down a platter with great aplomb then merrily went on her way. I saw before me a gourmet's delight, a rare prime rib, a cup of au jus, perfectly mashed potatoes, and seven green spears of asparagus. Asparagus rises with au jus, you know that. <laughs> After saying grace, I dug right in, chewing a piece of prime meat, with drool running down my chin. What an incredible treat. The asparagus was grand, so I tried the potatoes. What I found made me jump. The buttery heart of the mashed potatoes had somehow welcomed a lump. I threw down my napkin and called for the waitress and hollered, my spuds have a lump. My evening is ruined, and you may be sure I'll not eat again at
7: this dump. <laughs> um, this is uh, called a name game. I don't know how to explain it, so I'll just read it. (laughs) His uniform he wore with pride, always clean and pressed. It spoke of how he clothed himself each day as he got dressed. He wasn't prideful, no, not he. He only chose to show as he walked out that he was truly blessed. He came from nothing, he was told, as though his early life, all through his early life, His family had no extras to lessen life's cruel strife. Just be good, they told him, and you'll be okay. He made that rule his guiding words that led him on his way. Soon, a man of 30 years, he walked the streets alone. He kept his part of the city, a clean and peaceful zone. I knew him when I was a kid. He seemed so big and tall. He taught taught us boys to stand up true. And even if we fail, don't give up rise and grab that tiger by the tail. We grew up and he grew old. Most didn't know his name. They called him names, some not so nice, but nothing made him mad. He was a policeman, that's true, but I just called him dad.
14: Read the last poem in the book. It's called A Yellow Leaf, and it has a beautiful illustration by Sequoia. In my car, I carry a yellow scalloped fan-shaped leaf my grandson gave me, shed by an autumn ginkgo tree. Its parent trees survived the blast of meteorite and ice age freeze, a gentle brotosaur might have nibbled leaves like these, or Stegosaurus scratched, serrated back against a ginkgo branch. One thing is sure, this leaf bears witness, love, some things endure.
12: The other day, I thought I would pray, but then I thought, what do I say? To whom do I pray? Do I say, hey, you up there, do you even care? There's war, poverty, and grief everywhere. The earth is worn, my heart is torn. If I don't know your name, will you answer me just the same?
15: So on one this time, if I may. It's entitled, Life is Rife. When you think of life, do you think of people? Or some sort of bird perched on a steeple? Out in the desert, when there's a smell of skunk, you might want to hibernate or become a monk. If you ever wanted to follow a rat down a hole, you'd have to be as slim as a twisted pole. Then there are flowers whose aromas have special powers, or a giant redwood which over the countryside towers. In the heart of the city, you might consider yourself an ant. In the heat of the day, out on the trail, like a dog, you may need to pant. As for the snake in the grass, well, we'll let that pass. And the thought of being a crab could fill you with thoughts rather drab. In large parts of the world, there are weeds everywhere. But there are also fields of crops and herds of animals tended with care. Such variety, not to mention all those things that live in the sea. Ever considered it being a bee and making sunny, sweet honey, especially for me? Glad to see I'm not the only
2: one that likes poems that rhyme. This is my favorite poem, but my daughter said not to read it.
7: <laughs>
2: but you see, I don't mind her. <clears throat> it's called The Raven. I think the way re- reasons she didn't like it, or she didn't understand the last stanza, because she's never read The Raven. So here it is. What are you doing above my kitchen door? You crazy buzzard, get on the floor. Now look what you've done. You pooped on my wall, you son of a gun. I'll never more you, you albatross. And who are you calling Lenore? Get down and get off my kitchen door. I'm sorry, my eyes are, I have double vision, and I'm having a problem now. I (laughs) I got my broom and showed him who's boss. He jumped and squawked, and his tussled head he tossed. Try saying that. that sorry old bird with the raven hue, and my kitchen door, he began to chew. I took the broom and gave him a whack. I thought the old crow would never come back. He spread his wings and flew away, and stayed away for many a day. Then one fine morning, without any warning, He was perched up over the walk, spitting and sputtering and trying to talk. Spit it out, you crazy old clown. Still spitting and sputtering and come on down. He has a tear in his eye, I said to my spouse. Quoth the raven, I had the wrong house.